Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Wise. Lou is the sponsor of Manufacturing Talk Radio through his company, All Metals and Forge Group. Lou, how are you today? Uh, I was great until a couple of moments ago, but uh, that's <laughs> fine. Uh, we, we have a little bit of a change in our uh, batting order today, uh, but I'll leave that for you to discuss. Uh, <clears throat> just to uh, talk for a moment about our last week's uh, show, um, we did talk about uh, XM Bank, and uh, we did have uh, Don Nelson, who's on the advisory committee of the XM Bank. We had Congresswoman Dingle, 12th District, Michigan. She was great. Lauren Welk, who's the director of trade policy for NAM, National Association of Manufacturers. Linda Conlon, president of the World Trade Center in Philadelphia. Uh, it was a great show. Uh, the best part of that show was that within hours, and it, maybe we had something to do with it, I doubt it, but maybe we had something to do with the fact <laughs> that the House did pass the bill. I can't imagine. They must have been drugged that morning by the the opposing side. Uh, they did pass it. That's the good news. Bad news has to be brought to the Senate before it can go to the president for signature. Uh, it seems as though that the Senate is not so anxious to bring it up for a vote. So maybe we'll have to do another one of those executive orders, those little nasty things that uh, that Mr. uh, President uh, enjoys using, that the Republicans actually cringe every time he does it. Uh, That being said, and we'll probably be doing a show on on the following about the fact that XM Bank has uh, uh, been, um, uh, been passed and that needs to be passed in the Senate. Um, but there's some interesting facts, um, and, and uh, it kind of brought out by the Institute of Supply Management report that uh, Brad Holcomb uh, is the committee chair on. Um, it seems as though that um, export sales for the United States is down now five straight months below 50. And it's interesting that it's the same 50, I'm sorry, the same five months that uh, the XM Bank has been shut down. Uh, you think that might have something to do with it, Tim? you have any uh, thoughts on that? Can, can, can you draw any analogy that maybe those guys in Washington can't draw an analogy? It's amazing. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that they've hurt the businesses that use the XM Bank. So uh, we are going to actually work our way through Brad's report. Exports and imports are uh, way at the end of Brad's report. Um, I should say the report from the ISM. This is the October 2015 Manufacturing ISM Report on Business. Brad Holcomb is the committee chair who puts this report together along with his group based on the surveys of the manufacturers across the United States. Unfortunately, Brad was not available for today's show. We uh, we miss having him on the show, but we're going to work our way through his report to give our listeners an idea of 
what the report says and what its contents are. The report can be found at instituteforsupplymanagement.org, by the way, for those of you who are going to look for it. If you look on their website, you'll see a link that says Discover News and Publications, Resources, and there's a little flyout. There's an institute report on business. That's where you look for the report, which came out at 50.1. Now it says PMI. That's the Purchasing Manager's Index. This used to be called the Purchasing Manager's Index Report. And that PMI number is the one that you hear on the nightly news. And as Brad has educated us, this is a roll-up every month where they equally weight five sectors of the economy and come up with a mathematical formula to determine what the PMI is. And and above 50, we're expanding, and below 50, we're contracting. So 50.1, we are a hair above 50, Lou. We're hanging on by the skin of our teeth. I always question a number when it's so close to 50. But Brad's not here today for me to pick on him, so I feel I can't really do it justice. Um, yeah, it's uh, it was 50.2 last month. Um, uh, personally, from uh, my primary business, All Metals and Forge Group, uh, we did we have seen a pickup uh, at the very end of October, and uh, perhaps the, the the manufacturers turnaround all sectors are beginning to turn around. And you may see, and I'm going to predict it here, um, that next month or November is going to be a reasonably good increase, even though December typically is a down month. But I think November is going to be uh, dramatically better. So we can keep you all posted as we see that as we go. Um so we certainly uh, could use a better uptick month. <laughs> well, there's the, some of the good news is, and it's not all bad, and, and, and this just supports what I just said. Last last month, uh, new orders was 50.1, which is where we are now with the index. But the new orders for the month of uh, October is 52.9. It's gone up 2.8. That's that's really an excellent sign. It's an excellent sign. Um, the uh, some of the other numbers aren't quite as uh, as good. Um, the uh, export numbers, which I indicated uh, earlier when I was doing my clowning around with the news, um, is still below 50, and um, it's clearly, in my mind, as a result of the five-month shutdown of XM Bank, and it's the same five months where exports have dropped. It doesn't help with the dollar going up the way it's been, but um, we'll have to see how that XM Bank uh, issue plays out. And if the Senate uh, decides to bring it up for a vote, attach it to another bill and uh, squeeze it through. I'm not sure they're all going to be so nicey-nicey and agreeable as I just uh, painted that picture, but uh, we can keep our, our fingers crossed. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Brad does such an excellent job of presenting this report. I know he always talks about, uh, as you mentioned, Lou, the new orders, which have, uh, which have moved upward. The production index also uh, moved upward from September by 1.1 percentage points, so that's a gain up to 52.9 from 
Um, that's uh, that's a good move. Um, one of the things that we're concerned about as we look forward is the employment index, which registered 47.6. That's 2.9 percentage points below the September reading of 50.5. So uh, it looks like uh, employers uh, may be uh, slowing down hiring, even cutting back a little bit. Uh, I'm I, unfortunately, Brad, not here. We aren't able to find out whether or not the impact of mining oil drilling, that whole sector is influencing this number because a lot of those jobs are coming out of that sector. Um, the backlog of orders is uh, still very low, which means that production is cutting into the backlog with the new orders that were down in September. Uh, fortunately, the October uh, new orders should begin to drag that back upwards again. So uh, a healthy backlog of orders uh, simply means that manufacturing will continue at a solid pace for several months into the future as they work uh, through their backlog of new orders. And well, then I we're watching that, the price. I'm sorry, Luke, that, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to uh, butt in on an inventory number being uh, also uh, going down a big drop in that, which uh, also demonstrates that the production has been uh, steady and sturdy. Uh, but it, what it also means is that the inventory is uh, going to uh, – uh, dry up, and that they're going to have to start placing orders for more forgings, and uh, we're looking forward yeah. to that. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> certainly. The inventories that's talked about in this report are the uh, inventories that re- reside inside the manufacturer's plants, and they're trying to pull in raw materials and component parts. Uh, they, we also notice, however, that customer inventories are. Uh, down to 51, uh, a drop of three and a half points. Um, they were running a little high. Uh, obviously, the customers are letting their inventories burn off a bit. Uh, we see for the first time, I think, uh, uh, prices uh, um, decreasing. Uh, I'm sorry, increasing a little bit here. Um, so. All in all, I guess the numbers that we are the most concerned about, Lou, are the new order numbers because that begins to drive some of the other things. It can drive some of them negatively, but it, for for the manufacturing as a whole, new orders is the is the number that we all like to watch. Well, new orders and inventory. I yeah, I like it when the, I like it when I see the inventory low because somebody's got to pull the trigger and put their POs, their yeah. names on the POs. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. And uh, as we mentioned, all metals and forged saw an uptick in uh, in this uh, last month of October, so that's a, a nice strengthening. Uh, the report covers, by the way, commodities that are reported up and down in price. Those are always interesting to look at to see what's happening in terms of commodities. These are the raw materials that are going into production. And certainly the purchasing managers watch this section of the report to see where the strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, Not that anybody's front-loading, but it gives them an idea of what's been happening. Um, And then we start to get into the the, the real uh, meat of the report. If any of you have not looked at this report, it's not just the 50.1 number that you hear on the nightly news. There are pages and pages of information that back up each of the segments of the report. And those are always interesting to go through. For instance, you've got new orders. Where they talk about the eight industries reporting growth in new orders in October, which happened to be printing and related support activities, textile mills, 
furniture and related products, which I think uh, Brad has passed on to us that uh, had to do with construction. And fabricated uh, metals. And fabricated metals uh, are, are uh, one that's near and dear. Expanding. Uh, and the ones that are reporting some contraction are apparel, leather, and allied products, wood products, transportation equipment, plastics and rubber products, primary metals, and petroleum and coal products. The petroleum and coal is fairly expected. So that's what is happening in new orders. We encourage you to take a look at that. And there's also a, a, a summary of the last four months of what's being reported from the manufacturers that were surveyed, the percent that say it's better, the percent that say it's the same, the percent that say it's the worst. And it's uh, overall 1% better this year or this month than last month. So uh, that index up to 52.9 is a nice increase. You also see uh, the production uh, discussion here in the report. The production discussion, again, listed all of those industries that are reporting growth. Here's uh, the eight industries, printing and related support activities, miscellaneous manufacturing, which helps uh, in the metals industry, paper products, furniture and related products, uh, and there's fabricated, and fabricated metal, metal products. products. <laughs> <laughs> uh, food, beverage, and tobacco, chemical products, computer and electronic products. By the way, we think that furniture and related products is being driven by construction, as I mentioned earlier. Notice, notice, however, that the primary metals uh, is down. Yes. Yeah, it does appear the primary metals is down, Lou. Sorry. Uh, Yes. uh, And we are kind of watching this employment one. Um, For years and years, uh, people thought that employment was a lagging indicator uh, in the industry. And it turns out that Employment may, in fact, be a leading indicator, and here's why. Uh, I actually did a study on this for uh, All Metals and Forge Group. And if you look at manufacturing and you look at when manufacturers begin to reduce employment and when recessions begin, you find that manufacturers begin to reduce employment several months before the government records a recession. So this is always an area to watch. It's been very strong. We don't expect this one month down to be uh, off the edge of a cliff. It's probably simply a reflection of what's happening in some industry segments that are soft, like uh, mining and uh, minerals and oil and gas, which are struggling because of very low oil prices at the moment. And as that price per barrel of oil goes up closer toward uh, $60 a barrel and begins moving north from there, that industry will come back very strong. Yeah, you're not seeing $60 a barrel for a while. That's not happening uh, anytime soon. I don't think it's a 2015 <laughs> event. Uh, and I'm not sure it's a 2016 I'm not sure. event either. That's, that is correct. That is correct. Yeah, as that's far, a tough industry as, right now. As long as the Saudis start uh, selling uh or continue selling at the prices they are, and the fact that we've now released our uh, strategic reserve, so we're now helping to drive the price down as well. So, good luck with your sixty dollars a barrel. Yeah, and it's very tough. I I do, tough. I, I do believe that uh, we we have uh, two guests on. Um, 
And we're going to move to our to our next subject area in uh, in today's show. Uh, normally, uh, Brad's on for oh thirty forty minutes going through this, but we're not near as skilled as Brad in going through this report. Um, so next month we'll have Brad Holcomb back on from the Institute of Supply Management, and he can uh, probably correct all the things we said wrong for this report. <laughs> He'll probably have to do two shows at one time to make up for this one. Yeah, that's right, and we'll have to beg for forgiveness for everything we got wrong. Right. You know, the other half of our show today, Lou, is talking about the footprint that manufacturing is looking at by 2020. What are they going to do over the next five years with either plant optimization or plant expansion? And we've been very uh, privileged to work with the uh, with MAPI, the Manufacturers uh, Alliance uh, and Productivity. Uh, sorry, uh, for productivity and innovation. Um, we've had several people on from the show, and today we have joining us Jen Calloway, who's council director at MAPI. She manages MAPI CEO division leadership and strategic planning and development councils for MAPI. Uh, Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon, gentlemen. We're so welcome glad aboard. Have- we also have Matt Highfield with us. Matt is a director of uh, Deloitte Consulting. Uh, he works with their real estate and location strategy market offering area in the Minneapolis office. And Matt worked with Jen, as I understand it, on this particular report that MAPI puts together. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, we're we're always impressed with the uh, documents that come out of MAPI in cooperation with uh, Deloitte. Uh, there have been several very excellent ones that we've talked about on the show. So we're kind of honored and privileged to have you folks on the show uh, live today with a report that's just come out. I wonder, Jen, if you could explain to our audience what this particular report uh, is all about. Sure, Absolutely. So this particular report is really looking to answer some very common questions that I think many manufacturing executives have around, you know, what will be driving location selection in the future and how can they expect their manufacturing footprints to change over time so that they can strategically position themselves uh, for the future. Jen, do you think overall that manufacturers are expanding their operations in the United States over the next five years uh, more aggressively than perhaps they have in the last five years? Well, what the survey results are telling us is that many manufacturing companies, particularly those located uh, with their headquarters in the U.S., do have plans to continue to expand their operations here in the U.S., and in a few cases do have plans to reshore some of their operations from other countries back to the U.S. as well. Matt, do you have anything well, to add on that? No, I think that uh, th- that's a very interesting question. That's a question that we're uh, we're often asked. I think we can break that into two here. Certainly, uh, as Jen mentioned, there's there's a, a clear picture that uh, U.S.-based manufacturers are going to continue to invest in the United States, you know, across the entire value chain, primary, secondary. Um, distribution as well as R&D, which I think R&D is uh, is something we should discuss in just a moment. Um, But one thing that we have noted um, is that in terms of greenfield investments, uh, the U.S. has seen somewhat of a downturn um, in the past uh, four or five years. Um, Our our survey looked at uh, what we called North America 
which included the U.S. and Mexico. And in terms of, of the greenfield um, investments, certainly North America is it's, it's holding fairly steady, but, the, but uh, Mexico is getting a slightly larger uh, portion of those uh, investments. Okay. From, my under, from my understanding, uh, a lot of the reshoring that's coming back, quote-unquote, to the United States is actually going to uh, Mexico. Uh, do you hear any of that? Yeah, um, we uh, we do, and we 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 polled for that um, to an extent with this this survey, and in, indeed the concept of reshoring is one um, that is getting a lot of press. It's had a lot of press. There have been some fairly um, significant and high-profile you know, migrations of, of production lines from some some manufacturers back onto U.S. soil, which got a lot of press. Um, companies are talking about reshoring to North America. Um, but again, uh, Mexico, um, given its proximity to the U.S. Um, and, and still cost arbitrage, um, is, is, is quite an attractive proposition over the U.S. for, uh, for reshoring of operations. Generally, uh, I just want to uh, kind of walk through this report with you and Matt and, and have you highlight for our listeners uh, really what it's saying. I encourage any of our listeners to go to the MAPI site and uh, take a look at this report along with some of the other excellent documents they have here on various subject matters. But uh, why don't we jump into uh, uh, where this report really starts off, and that's keeping pace with the complex global manufacturing Environment and one of the questions I have uh, that we run across here frequently in talking to manufacturers is the rapid pace of technological change. You know, how does a manufacturer who's going to put a plant somewhere adjust for the fact that by the time they have that plant built, you know, how much of it's obsolete? I don't know if your report touched on that, but I'd love to hear what uh, you and Matt discovered in. Uh, keeping uh, pace with the complex manufacturing environment globally. Yeah, our our, our uh, study didn't touch on that per se, but one there's one aspect of our uh, of a study that I think is relevant here and that was, you know, what are the what are the key location drivers today versus key location drivers in 2020. Um, and what we're seeing here is a shift. Uh, I mean, a lot of them remain static, things like accessing new, mar accessing new markets, proximity to customers, talent, et cetera. But there were a couple of kind of new entrants in the, the top location consideration. Those were technology adv advances in technology that were taking place offshore and also the educational infrastructure um, in the destination markets. Uh, I think we, we've heard a lot talked about uh, the availability of science, technology, engineering, and math talent, STEM talent in the U.S. Um, as we, as, uh, pr as production becomes more advanced, uh, we're, we're, we're introducing new um, manufacturing concepts that require a greater level of the STEM talent. You know, we are seeing companies consider doing that offshore, whereas previously that would have been uh, the purview of, uh, of the U.S. and sort of Western Europe. Matt, are the uh, countries offshore where they're considering doing that either throttling up or have well throttled up their STEM education that makes it attractive to the manufacturers to locate there? 
yes. Uh, I mean, I think culturally the, the, there's a very strong emphasis on China and in China and India on, on STEM education. And I think that's reflected in some of our findings related to which piece of the, um, the business they're considering offshoring to those locations or expanding in those locations. Uh, there was one interesting data point that, that Jen and I managed to gather um, that was related to where R&D was taking place. And behind the U.S., um, really the two locations that have the greatest uh, um, sort of plan for expanding R&D was China and India. Uh, both locations that have a, say, a very strong onus on STEM talent uh, and at the same time um, co-locating that with production, you know, there's a strong, a strong case for that. Well, that's interesting because we always hear a great deal about China. Um, I think we hear less about India. Um, What's your sense of the market for our listeners on how India is developing? I, I know it's coming on very strong. Uh, give us, give our listeners kind of an overview of what's happening in India that makes them as attractive now, I think, as China. Well, I think there are a number of facets there. First of all, you have a highly educated uh, workforce uh, and an increasingly strong um, technical school infrastructure there. Um, obviously, cost is a, uh, a key consideration. It is a very, very cost-effective location to uh, produce in. Some of the challenges that have been traditionally encountered by companies looking to, uh, to um, invest in India um, are slowly being overcome. I, I question whether they are, they're certainly not over the hump yet, but as it relates to infrastructure, um, traditionally, um, there's been a large net deficit of power availability versus um, versus demand in India. The Modi government is, is making a lot of strong noises about improving infrastructure uh, and targeting you know, um, bespoke industrial parks for you know, infrastructure investment. Now, we've heard this has been heard before. I have to, I have to say that uh, we, as a, as a firm of, of explored India for a number of our clients down the years, and infrastructure does continue to be a challenge. The availability of um, high-quality, shovel-ready um, production sites continues to be a challenge, but India is moving in the right direction. Now, if you, if you couple that with the size of the market there and the growing middle class in India, um, there's a compelling reason to solve those problems both for the government and also for um, uh, for the companies. Yeah, let's talk about uh, Brazil for a minute. Uh, they uh, always seem to be on the list, and uh, we spent a fair amount of time there ourselves, uh, All Metals and Forge Group. We've been down there. We've uh, spent a year uh, developing a sales strategy there. And uh, it's a very difficult country to do business in, not even to mention uh, their economics, uh, their uh, their government, the uh, criminality, and uh, they don't seem to be getting out of their own way. Do you, do you have any comments on Brazil? Yeah, I too have done quite a bit of work down in Brazil over the years, and you know I'll, I'll choose my words carefully. Um, <laughs> it can be a challenging place to do 
to do business, there's no question. I think some of the things that you've identified continue to be a challenge. Um, it's one of those locations where, I mean, there's certainly a lot of talent there. There's no question about that engineering talent. Um, but it's a market that you have to be in, given that, given that its size uh, and, its, uh, and its relative wealth, um, you kind of have to be in Brazil. Uh, now, the government can be punitive as it relates to taxation. Um, and, you know, there are some what, what some may describe as kind of protectionist um, policies in place as it relates to the importation of equipment, et cetera. Um, but it's a, lo it's a location that continues to be solicited. Now, if you look at, uh, look at the survey that we did, Brazil, along with India and China, came top in terms of the next location that companies that don't have operations there are going to hit. And that, I, don't, I think that, that makes good sense. I don't think there's any surprises there given the size of the market. But again, a lot of talent there, but it can indeed be a challenging place to do business. Uh, Jen, I want to jump back to you for just a moment. Um, all of the work that you do with Maypie's uh, councils, um, what was it that uh, triggered in Maypie's mind uh, to take a look at this 2020 footprint? Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> pardon me, um, a lot of executives are just simply very interested in understanding how their strategies compare to others. So if you think about the example we were just talking about, about Brazil. Brazil is a challenging place to operate in, um, for sure, um, but most companies still have plans to continue to operate there in the long term. So I think that there's always value for people to get a pulse check from others in their industries to make sure that the long-term strategic decisions that they're making, um, whether it be about expanding their footprint or maintaining the current footprint they have, is in line with other manufacturers, um, you know, just as a, a gut check on the strategy that they believe is correct for their business. Um, so there's that element of, um, of voyeurism for sure. I think also, you know, simply people are interested in answering some of the questions that the study has been able to answer for us, particularly around the reshoring. You know, we hear a lot um, in the news and the media, there's a lot of buzz about things being reshored. And so I think simply people are interested in understanding more factually speaking, you know, what are companies planning to do? Um, and if they are planning to reshore, which I, 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 about 30% of the respondents told us that they were, where are they planning to, to put that put put that footprint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think I, that, that was a very that was a very interesting learning for us. And I think Jen, you'd probably agree that it's it's in, certainly encouraging that of all the companies that we 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 spoke to um, and and surveyed, a third a third of them are considering bringing um, production closer to the United States or or back to Mexico. And I think that's that was a a very interesting and eye-opening finding for us again so and, and that was in concert with expansion elsewhere but part of their footprint strategy was indeed to study markets closer to uh, to north america yeah and just to build on that i think that there was a lot of good news story for the u.s as a whole um, you know, as people are talking about expanding their U.S. operations as well. So while China certainly will see continued investment, this really validates that U.S. manufacturers will continue to be investing in the U.S. Um, with, with, uh, with new facilities as well. One of the things that uh, concerns me, 
And uh, the first part of our show, we talked about uh, XM Bank and um, how it is, has been uh, hasn't been reauthorized yet in five or six months. Um, it seems as though that uh, the report, the um, ISM report, indicated that uh, export sales in this country dropped by uh, several points, and it's uh, uh, looking like it's the same five months that the XM Bank has been shut down. Uh, as a result of that, uh, in in some um, uh, mainstream media, I've, I've heard stories about General Electric, for example, uh, in Wisconsin, moved their division to Canada. Uh, they moved another uh, uh an engine group, and I don't know if it's aircraft, I don't think it is, moved it to uh, England. Uh, Caterpillar Tractor uh, also picked up and moved and opened up a, uh, I think, an assembly plant in China along with uh, Boeing. So there's a lot of uh, companies that are looking at this, this refinancing and financing foreign exports as a means to uh, do business, and now they're not getting it, so they're moving. Uh, th- these are some rather formidable country- companies that are uh, leaving the country and, and putting their footprint elsewhere. Uh, any thoughts on that or comments? Yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with the report, but I think it, it would certainly be misleading to think that, that there's a, a, a huge migration back to the U.S. I think the concept of, of offshoring um, and you know, redistributing the footprint across the globe is um, is a trend that's going to continue. I think Western Europe has seen it. I think North America is going to continue to see it. Um, but I mean, I, there are also some some positives again that that I think came out of the the study in in question of what are these companies reinvesting in the U.S. for? Um, and and again, as I as I mentioned a moment ago. A significant portion of the companies that we surveyed are going to continue to invest in their research and development and more advanced um, technologies in North America. Um, I think a, a lot has been talked about you know, the quality of the jobs in in North America that are being produced by by companies. Yes, there are positions being moved offshore. In many cases, you know, but they're, they're being moved simply to be closer to the market. Uh, you know, every every case is different. I can't speak to the companies that you you mentioned, but there's normally a, a you know a very specific reason for that. But the U.S. is still going to get some quality jobs in the advanced manufacturing and the research and development space. That, mm-hmm. that, that that's just, my opinion. Yeah, and just to emphasize what Matt mentioned there, I think that the big thing to remember as we think about, or rather as we hear about shifts in manufacturing footprints, is that the main driver remains commercial opportunity for companies. So they're continuing to reposition their footprints around market opportunities and the proximity to their customers. So as companies become more global, as you know, manufacturing companies, some of the smaller manufacturing companies start to have more of a global presence, it simply makes a lot of sense for some of their operations to start uh, you know, moving along with that. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. Yeah, I certainly find it very interesting. We're going to come back to that point in a minute. We're going to take a brief commercial break, and then we're going to be uh, back with uh, Jen Calloway from uh, Maypie and Matt Highfield from Deloitte in just a few moments. 
Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome back. My name is Tim Grady. We're back with uh, Lou Weiss, Manufacturing Talk Radio, and our two special guests, Jen Calloway, who's Council Director for the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation, and Matt Highfield, who's Director of Deloitte Consulting. Uh, Matt, I want to touch on three countries in your report that I find very interesting, uh, particularly the third one, South Africa being one, Turkey being the second one, and Vietnam being the third, and I, I highlight Vietnam obviously because the United States was uh, fighting a war there for so many years, and while everyone thinks we lost the war um, uh, from a military standpoint, economically, in the long run, it's uh, it's turned out uh, much better than we ever expected. What's the attraction for going into South Africa, Turkey, and Vietnam? Yeah, we, we surveyed for this, and this, this was very interesting. As we, as we looked at uh, which countries are going to be getting some of the next wave of, uh, of investments and as, as these footprints expand, as you, as you mentioned, South Africa, Turkey, and Vietnam popped up. And as part of our survey, we asked, why was that? For South Africa and Turkey, the primary drivers were access to new markets. They're, they're, they have large populations with a growing middle class and increasing um, levels of consumerism. So companies are looking to locate facilities closer to that market, shorten shorten their supply chain, and just simply gain access to those markets. Vietnam is slightly different, um, as you would probably imagine. Vietnam is a lower-cost production location in um, Southeast Asia, uh, and our, our respondents cited that 
market entry clearly as a cost reduction opportunity. Um, we've even seen a, a fairly sizable um, you know, population of Chinese companies looking to lower their, their uh, production costs migrating into Vietnam over the past few years, and an increasing number of U.S. companies are also considering entering that market. Um, so it's getting a lot of it's getting a lot of press on the manufacturing side. Um, it, it struggles a little bit with its infrastructure outside of the the industrial parks, um, which are you know popping up and are certainly improving. Um, but it is it's a cost play. Hmm, interesting. Now the other one that pops up. And then we don't hear much about it, at least in the U.S., is Poland. What's happening in Poland? Yeah, Poland's, in, Poland's another interesting one. If, if, we, look at, if we look at FDI flows um, pre-recession, um, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of the investments were being made in Europe, um, we saw a shift to Asia after the recession. But for, um, for products and production that, is, uh, that needs to be proximate to the European market, Poland has a very favorable mix of moderate costs vis-a-vis some of the companies that are migrating there, German companies, French companies, um, UK companies, to produce. Um, it also has a, a, a high concentration of highly talented uh, engineering and production workers. So it's really a, it's a, it's a blend between you know, uh, access to talent at a moderate cost um, and proximity to um, the Western European markets for products that aren't necessarily uh, well shipped over from uh, from other low cost locations in Asia. We've we've spent uh, we spent a lot of time there as a uh, as a practice, and yeah, it's it's there's a, a great preponderance, I say, of, of of strong technical talent in Poland, um, especially in the uh, the engineering pools. Interesting. Jen, so far in this report, as we've gone through the first uh, dozen pages or so, was there anything that jumped out at you and Maypi that was a, was a real surprise? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, much of what we learned, you know, to be quite candid, I think more than anything reaffirmed many of the things that, you know, Matt, may, Matt and I may have thought going into it. Um, I think that, you know, perhaps the the one place, and, you know, I hate to go back to a conversation that, that we've already had here, um, was really around the reshoring. So I think that, you know, trying to be optimistic in terms of the opportunities to see some of these operations coming back to the U.S., um, you know, it it may not have been surprising, um, but nonetheless perhaps somewhere we, where we might have hoped to have seen um, more of it coming to the U.S. rather than going to Mexico. Uh, you know, Matt, I'll, I'll punt that question over to you as well. Was there anything else that, that might have come as a, as a bit of a surprise to, to you, given your broad experience in this area? Yeah, my um, well, uh, I'm not sure whether it, it came as a surprise, but it was interesting to see it again. If we go back to to reshoring, um, what we polled for were the the top reasons for initially offshoring, and then we asked the top reasons for offshoring. Sorry for for reshoring. Initially, the reasons for offshoring were lower labor costs. I don't think there's any surprise there. Access to new markets, lower logistics costs, tax and talent. Those were the five reasons for offshoring. Now, when it comes to reshoring, we're some interesting findings were that companies are actually coming back to improve logistics costs. 
um, as just as we were listening into your previous point, um, your previous discussion before we jumped on, uh, we were talking about whether um, oil is going to get to sixty dollars a barrel. I think some of the reshoring was a knee-jerk uh, reaction to very very high oil oil costs um, you know, a few years ago. But that was something that companies are very sensitive to, and they if they're very supply chain sensitive. Um, Improving logistics costs was a reason for reshoring. Next was proximity to North America markets. Another one was in improving labor costs, which I think is an acknowledgement that many, many companies have, have experienced that actually costs are rising quite significantly in China um, in terms of production, in terms of the cost of land, etc., and at some point, there's, a, there's a, an inflection point in the business case where it makes sense to really consider um, bringing some of that, that stuff back. Favorable IP protection was another one. And then finally was, was improved production quality. And there's another reason for reshoring operations. So I don't know whether any of those are a great surprise to me, um, other than possibly you know, improvement of labor costs uh, for reshoring. But it certainly uh, made for very interesting reading for Jen and I. Mm-hmm. I actually, you know, at, as I was listening to Matt speak there, one other thing to, to put to the table that I that I found interesting is one of the questions that we asked that, you know, doesn't sit in the main report here, but was to try and understand which policy areas are presenting a significant negative impact on a on a company's sustaining efficient operations in a country. One of the things that we hear quite often about the U.S. in terms of continuing to invest in manufacturing is around our tax and regulatory policies. What was interesting mm-hmm. to me was that while our respondents said that there was a moderate negative impact on these two elements to continuing to invest in the U.S., by no means was it as high on the scale as um, some other issues in other countries were. So while we hear quite often about tax and regulatory issues perhaps hindering U.S. manufacturers from investing in the U.S., um, you know, it was interesting me to, to me to see, or at least rather perhaps quite happy to see, that it, it isn't quite hindering it nearly as much in this group of 50 companies as, as we might hear on occasion. There was one, uh, one point that I found surprising, and I'm sort of bringing up, uh, coming around the back, back side of the barn again on this one, Brazil. It's your number one country in terms of the number of people who are interested in uh, offshoring or, or expanding their footprint into Brazil. In view of the fact that we all agree that it's a very difficult country to do business in it, what's the attraction? I think it's for, market access. Mm-hmm. I, think, uh, I think that, that it, it's market access. And, and I, would, I would suggest, I think, that some of those um, companies – uh, have been you know, slower, than, slower than others to embrace it. I think it's something that eventually has to be sold for companies that, that want to access that market. And you know, in, for, for many of these companies, most of these companies, actually setting up an operation in Brazil is a, is a bullet they have to bite. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them have been quicker to do it. Others have been a little slower. And I think that the, those that have been a little slower are showing up as uh, you know, is, uh, is putting Brazil at the top of that list of uh, new locations in the survey. Yeah, and I would definitely echo what Matt said in recent conversations um, with CEOs, division leaders, heads of strategy. Um, I, I think that there's almost a lament um, that, that you need to be there, but you also can't not be there as well. 
Is this, uh, I mean, can we, do we dare give Brazil credit for a strategic policy that said they put tariffs on that are so onerous that the only way you can do business with us is to establish yourself in the market, and that's a win for Brazil? I am going to punt that. <laughs> I, I think that's so flagrant. It's a tough one. I would say it's probably less by design and more by accident. But <laughs> that's probably a fair assessment. I think, uh, put it this way: I think I think the Brazilian government have made some some good decisions for the Brazilian people uh, in terms of some of their 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 policy around things like tariffs and importation. I think that that is they recognize the value of their popular population to you know, to the to, to producers and, and manufacturers and have put some policies in place <laughs> that are aligned with that. So that's what I will I will that's, I think it's that's a fair what I'll answer. Say. I think it's a, fair, a completely fair answer. Now Matt and, and Jen, it's no easy task to uh, make these decisions to uh, put your production facilities in other countries. How does the footprint become complicated? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. I think what we find is it can it can become complicated fairly quickly when you look at <laughs> uh, how you align the the corporate strategy. Where do I want to go as a company? What do I want to achieve? Am I pursuing new customers? Am I um, trying to lower my operating costs? Am I looking for talent? And then look at what are essentially assets that in many cases are fixed. Um, there's often a misalignment there. Now, the question is, you know, do they serve my existing need? Maybe. Do they, do they meet my ambitions and my corporate strategy five or ten years from now? Probably not. Uh, and if you look at, the, there are also complicating factors around um, how some of these facilities have been acquired. If they've been acquired through M&A, they're, they're part of a joint venture. Um, the footprint can become quite complicated because assets that, uh, that in theory should be movable as much as a manufacturing facility can be, it takes time, it takes money, um, they become static. And that really complicates the uh, the footprint, introduces inefficiency, and candidly, one of the the, the biggest challenges we found um, is that there's just a, a proliferation of of production sites, um, which creates excess capacity in many of them, uh, and really does not um, does not promote efficiency. Okay. Okay. Jen, anything that you would care to add to, to that as you and Matt worked uh, through this report? Yeah, I mean, I think just to emphasize that the M&A activity, I think, is is going to be something that is going to continue to introduce complexity into footprints. There's a lot of pressure for companies, even though the, the market is very heated right now, to continue to make acquisitions. And as they make acquisitions, you know, whether it's within the United States or in other countries, they will simply just continue to acquire more assets that are fixed that will be challenging for them to integrate into their footprint. So this is something that I think most companies need to really think about how they will handle the assets that come with their acquisitions because we don't see the need to grow inorganically uh, going away anytime soon. Okay. And I, I, w I would add just a comment, for, uh, an observation from the, the survey that you know, one thing we asked was, you know, how far out is your kind of footprint planning cycle? 
Uh, are you mm-hmm. purely reactive or are you planning 10 plus years out? And, and Jen, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was about 50% of companies had that kind of three to five year mm-hmm. um, yep. planning timeline, which yep. we live in a very dynamic world, um, but that sort of three to five years is almost the bare minimum. If you think about what it takes to to wind a plant down or to stand a plant up, um, that can be a, a three to five year process um, in some of the easier markets to operate in. Now, if you if you find yourself with an outlying facility that is either redundant or really doesn't meet your strategic goals, um, you need to be planning three, five, seven years out. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. Um, you know, one of the, the, uh, the challenges in uh, this kind of uh, strategic uh, movement is, you know, what can go wrong? What can become misaligned. Can you share that with our listeners? Yeah, we certainly can. Um, we can. We find that uh, one of the risks is that companies aren't positioned to meet the changes in customer demand um, as new markets emerge. We certainly find that uh, talent shortages are another consideration there that that they find themselves you know, lagging in terms of uh, do they have? Are they in the right locations to acquire the right skills to to drive future productivity? I think that that is uh, that is something that we're increasingly seeing. Um, there's always a pressure to remove to, to reduce cogs, um, but if you find yourself having been a little slow off the mark as it relates to your your sort of footprint planning, you can find yourself in high cost um, geographies that don't let you reduce those costs. They just simply the structural costs in those uh, in those markets are very very high. Uh, it can be a that can be a significant challenge. Um, I think Jen mentioned earlier also um, M&A activity um, sort of being a little being slow off the uh, off the mark in terms of figuring out how you divest of you know, of legacy facilities or facilities that come into your portfolio that really don't fit your strategic needs. Uh, that can certainly be a drag on performance that uh, that we see, and that's that's a, a, a complex process to unwind. That there are certainly a, a number of them, and uh, we want to uh, certainly thank uh, both you, uh, Matt. With uh, this is Matt Highfield with uh, Deloitte and uh, Jen Calloway with uh, Maypie. There's a lot more to this report that we uh, simply are not going to have time to go into. But uh, we encourage anyone to go to, uh, uh, well, let me ask uh, this, uh, Jen, where can they find this report? Sure, absolutely. Um, for On the MAPI uh, website, you can certainly find it um, at www.mapi.net. Um, and Matt, do you have some information to share about the best way to find it via Deloitte? Um, it is actually out on our Deloitte uh, website. I believe you can find it uh, by by searching for Footprint 2020. And is this just generally available uh, uh, to both members, non-members, uh, clients, non-clients? Yep, that, yes. that's right. So, And I should mention on the MayPi site, the best way to find it is through some of the blogs that I've written. So if you are... Find me under the experts. Um, you can see a couple of places where we featured it, and it is open and available to anybody, um, regardless of their membership status with MayPi. Okay. 
Well, Jen, thank you for being on the show and sharing this uh, very insightful and valuable report. This is excellent information. Thank you for joining us. Great. Thank you both, gentlemen. Thank you and for Matt, joining us. Matt, we have certainly enjoyed having you on the show. We uh, uh, are always very excited to have uh, Maypie on and certainly someone from Deloitte, which is a highly respected consulting firm, has been for decades, and we appreciate you being uh, on the show with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Matt. We look forward to it again. Uh, uh, Lou, you've got some information on what uh, we're up to next week. Uh, we yeah, will not we're... be broadcasting in our usual manner. Yeah, we're going to be a bunch of bad boys. We're going out to Chicago, and we're going to be there for three, four days, and we're doing the Fabtech show. Uh, we've been asked to uh, broadcast live uh, from there. We will be broadcasting Monday, our regular show on Tuesday, and Wednesday. We're going to be uh, uh, broadcasting at uh, our usual 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and uh, 12 o'clock uh, p.m. Uh, Chicago time. And we've got tons of guests set up. Matter of fact, uh, uh, one of our, our, our lead speaker is also the keynote speaker at Fabtech, and that's Rusty Wallace, one of my favorite drivers at NASCAR. So uh, you should uh, all tune in to that. He's uh, a uh, inspirational speaker. He's going to tell us the knack on how to win at all the NASCAR races, um, and we <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> and uh, so we're going to have a lot of fun out there. And uh, please uh, tune in. And again, anybody who's going to be at Fabtech, we are at booth N fourteen thousand. It's the concourse between the North Building and the South Building, which means that we may have 40,000 people walking past our booth. Um, we better have lots of M&Ms. Um, yeah. our, <laughs> and uh, anybody wants to come to our website, see our last week's show, and after this show, uh, it'll be podcast on our website at mfgtalkradio.com. And uh, hope to uh, hear you, see you next week uh, at uh, Fabtech. We look forward to it. That uh, takes care of Manufacturing Talk Radio for this week, and we will be interested in having our listeners join us next week as we broadcast from Fabtech in Chicago. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.